Magic is power. Patrick, I am your legacy newbie. With me this week, as always, Mr. Jerry Me. What's up, Jerry? Not much, Pat. How are you doing today? Oh, man, I am super happy. I am, like, singing the praises of Grizzlebrand today because he has graced me with my full power of voice. Like, I'm so excited. It's been nearly a month since I've had an actual, like, full voice, so <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited. Praise be to Grizzlebrand. <laughs> Praise be to Grizzlebrand. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> before we end the episode, we have some great guests on this week. But as always, I just want to say thank you to Hipster the Coast. You know, they bring you Leaving a Legacy every Friday. Uh, you can check them out for, obviously, Leaving a Legacy. You can find a ton of content on there. Eternal Dirtles is another podcast they carry. Uh, Jerry Spice Cabinet they carry when he chooses to actually write for them. Um, but there's a ton of content on there, so you can check out Hipster the Coast for awesome just magic content in general. Uh, also, if you want to support the show, you can visit patreon.com slash leaving a legacy. You can support the show for as little as a dollar an episode. Uh, we have some awesome rewards, stickers and shout outs and play mats. Um, we have rewards like signed cards and, uh, and so much more. We're working on new pint glasses slash beer steins. Uh, so check it out. The link is in the show notes. And so this with us this week, yeah, uh, excuse me, with us this week, Jerry, uh, we have two of our good friends, uh, well, new friends to me at least, at least, uh, Lawrence. What's going on, Lawrence? How are we doing, man? What's up? How you been? <laughs> Doing all right. And we also have uh, uh, our our friend Min. Min on the cast. What's going on, Min? Hello, hello, hello. How are we doing? Uh, I am fantastic. <laughs> so uh, I know a lot of our listeners have been introduced to Lawrence. Lawrence, you've been on the cast before. But Min, can you give us a little bit about yourself, kind of like what you do in Legacy, uh, you know, if you're streaming, where you stream, and just kind of like your kind of your place in the format? Sure. Um, so my name, my full name is Min Hodgel Hawk. Uh, a lot of people online on, like, the source and Reddit and stuff, know me as Minifer or Mini Hodge. Uh, I'm known for pretty much exclusively playing Miracles and being really, really good at research. Um, so people <laughs> ask me, like, lots of human encyclopedia questions, and I usually know the answers to them. Uh, I've been playing Legacy since late 2013, so relatively recent compared to a lot of people. And I've picked up uh, Miracles and pretty much played it exclusively as my only deck and my only form of magic for pretty much this entire time, so up until present day. Nice. And uh, what are you playing now, most recently? Uh, well, Miracles. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I still... Still grinding, still grinding that axe, right? Yep, absolutely. Uh, the deck, I think, is still quite good, even if I am a little sad at the loss of uh, its brokenness. But that's, that's all right. <laughs> I think it's still good. That's a fine deck. And I play it reasonably well. Uh, I can't really imagine playing anything else. So that's me. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. All right, well, uh, we'd like to kind of get into if we can talk about our week in Magic. Jerry, did you get a chance to play any Legacy this week or anything else? Um, I played a ton of Innistrad flashback drafts. Oh, yeah, they are doing, the doing the flashback drafts on uh, Moto, right? I did, and it is very much a pull a Liliana or get Geist of St. Draft lottery, and I did what need about Grizz- those. in there too, right? <laughs> No, it's just it's just three times Innistrad. Oh, okay, triple Innistrad. I got you. This yeah. in, Invisible Stalker is an Innistrad, correct? Oh yeah, that's okay. that's how I get my wins. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> I draft Invisible Stalker and all the equipment. 
Yeah, there's there's basically two decks. It's the Invisible Stalker Equipment deck, and then there's the Spider Spawning deck, which I've both heard of them. which are just so unfair. <laughs> I've heard the Blue-White deck is actually pretty decent, but I started playing after Innistrad, so I never really drafted the format. Yeah. It uh it brings back... So I came back as, like, New Phyrexia was leaving, so Innistrad was really my, like, first set back to Magic, so it got those nostalgia feels for me. Nice. There it yeah. is. But, uh, yeah, but other than that, no legacy because someone told me I couldn't go <laughs> to the legacy tournament on Saturday because we had to do work for the podcast. That's true. And then I ended up not even being able to make it up. And then you I fell asleep. Fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, them's the breaks, Jerry. Them's the breaks. <laughs> yeah. So oh, no, man. no legacy for me. What about you guys? Uh, I actually didn't get a chance to play any Legacy this week. I, I did play a little bit of uh, Eternal, uh, but it was all like on my phone. I just haven't had the time to sit down at my PC and, and get any Moto reps in. How about uh, how about Lawrence? What did you get done this week? Uh, I've been kind of burning tickets, trying out various Legacy decks, and trying to get better at like not Miracles. Uh, but I have been playing the vin- like the Vintage Challenges as often as I can, and uh, mm-hmm. kind of been making a lot of money doing that, which has been nice. <laughs> Are those the ones that that, that fire every Sunday? Uh, they're Saturday. Um, oh, Saturday, okay. Yeah, what's nice about them is that they're smaller than the Legacy Challenges, and... Um, they're really, really good make, EV. <laughs> yeah, you, you make your cash back at X3, and then you profit at... Uh, x2 i believe yep and then you can potentially top eight at x2 and then it's wow. you know all gravy from there that's awesome how many rounds is that typically six. Oh wow that's that's awesome <laughs> yeah so it's been pretty sweet i might want to borrow a vintage deck from you sometime you're not playing lawrence i cause... am i'm borrowing land still from tom <laughs> Uh, Good. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend the deck. There's a lot of powerful things you can do in Vintage, and Landstill is not one of them. But uh, <laughs> but the deck is fun, man. Sometimes all you want to do is just play Jace the Mind Sculptor. <laughs> always. I always want to play Jace the Mind Sculptor. <laughs> what about you, Min? You play some uh, Magic this week? Uh, I did. So the Eternal Weekend was the week before, uh, and then I played a, like a local event and then a league. Um, I, I just kind of running back miracles. I went undefeated in both. I, I well, excuse me. I four won the league, and then I five would locally, but that doesn't really count because I usually do that. Uh, sorry, local people, if you're listening. I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Get better, local people. Get better. Uh, honestly, everyone's gotten a lot better. We kind of started boot camping a couple months ago, and things yep. people have gotten a lot, lot better. Uh, and well, so can you explain to me like what do you mean by boot camping? Okay, so a bunch of us got together and reali- and we're like, okay, hey, we all want to get better at legacy together, and we don't necessarily have time to play in local events. Mm-hmm. So we started doing like Saturday boot camps where we just like meet up and jam games against one another. Um, and myself being like, I-, I played pretty much every matchup in legacy from the miracle side, so I kind of know how a lot of decks function. And so I'm able to help people understand sequencing, what to play around, how to play around it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so we collectively have gotten a lot better, not just because of me. Like other people have kind of noticed their own mistakes too in the past. Like as time has progressed too. Um, so seeing like my, my buddy Alex, he picked up Dead and Taxes like a year ago, and he's been collecting the pieces, but never actually sat down to play it. And then a couple months ago, he started playing it like for hours every single Saturday, and he's gotten way, way, way better at it. And that that it kind of improvement as a local like at a local level is really, really cool to me. Especially from yeah, 
starting from like almost nothing, basically. That's awesome. Yeah, I I've, I found that like the times where I feel like I'm I'm best grasping the format and making the most level ups is when I'm just jamming as much magic as I can. And yep. unfortunately, that's not as often as I'd like to. But I really think when people ask like, what's the key to getting better magic? It, a lot of it is just like playing a lot of the a lot of the game. So there's kind of a delta there, though, right? Because you can play a lot against the same people, and if neither of you are improving, you're not actually learning anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like my buddies Mike and Dan. I love them dearly. I grew up with them. We all learned magic together. But Mike only plays Burn, and Dan only plays Pox. And there is only <laughs> so good you can get at the format just doing against people of the same skill level on the same decks over and over again. Right, exactly. And you're going to run into a lot of those people. Uh, uh, I, uh, our buddy Jarvis, Jarvis U, actually has a, has a saying, uh, practice smarter, not harder. Mm. Uh, actually, I don't know if he even initially said that, obviously, but I heard it from him for the first time. <laughs> that and would be he, like a Theodore Roosevelt quote. Probably, <laughs> my, yeah. my My dad has been saying, work harder, not sm- work smarter, not harder my entire life. Yeah, yeah. So, like, the basis of that is, okay, you can play Magic for six hours a day, 365 days a year, but you can also like be terrible at it every single as time progresses so eventually you get to a point where you just playing magic doesn't do anything for you playing against people that are better than you is what does it um so that's like a really big key and you have to kind of figure out where that sweet spot is before you start evolving as a player mm-hmm. very cool yeah i think uh that's that's absolutely uh, a big part of the equation as well as mm-hmm. like elevating the the you know at least a way to elevate your own game is to play against better players yep and teaching people to get better is a good way of getting better players. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, awesome. So, yeah, I, I've, I've been a bad Legacy player lately. I haven't played a lot of Legacy, but we are going to – I am going to talk about it today like I'm like it's fresh in my mind. We're going to talk about uh, SCG DC. The Open had 537 players, and I actually didn't get a chance to catch a lot of the uh, the coverage. Did any of you guys get a chance to watch a lot of it? I watched almost every single round. I watched nice. most of it as well, uh, but a lot of it was during the Vintage Challenge, so – I was kind of not paying that much, you know, that close of attention to it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think I checked out, like, a half of a round, and, like, it was it was good. I mean, I, I always like when, when Star City Games covers Legacy. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate they don't do it as often anymore, but they seem to do a good, pretty good job of it. Yeah, they, they always do a really good job. Uh, I, th- I think, so I'm known for, like, imbibing content as soon as it comes out. So, like... <laughs> If there's a tournament that happens in some obscure city in Siberia, I know about it, like, the day after it happens. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah I, I watched most of the Open. If I didn't catch it live, I watched the replays, and I've pretty much gotten everything I can get out of it, I guess. Oh, very cool. Yeah. That's great, because we can definitely pick your brain on that then. Uh, so, Jerry, what were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to say, uh, where do you kind of catch replays? Like, so Star City Games has, you know, their catalog, but do you find replays for other maybe lesser-known tournaments? Uh, yes. So I'm also, I also follow every piece of Legacy content on Twitch, and I check it pretty regularly. Um, I, like, I watch, like, random Haruya tournaments at 2 o'clock in the morning. I watch, <laughs> uh, like, Gameplace Lucerne do their once-a-month, a like, monthly Legacy event. It's like 16 people every time, and it's like not not super great quality, but I watch it anyway. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I feel like I kind of passively imbibe that content and absorb it as time goes on. I'm 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 like not necessarily convinced I'm human. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of like half human, half robot, and it kind of just 
constantly stare at things. We jokingly <laughs> used to call him Menbot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I could I could look up a, a decklist within like thirty seconds of some random obscure tournament that happened three years ago. I'm fairly it, convinced Men knows more about me than I know about myself. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that may or may not be true. I can't I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> Awesome. Well, yeah, it looks like they they have some really good, uh, uh, just kind of articles that were, or at least like breakdowns of the, of day two and the top eight here. Um, Grixis Delver and Four Color Control look like they were the top two decks on day two with uh, sixteen copies and fifteen copies respectively. Um, they had one hundred twenty three players on day two, and I think we already mentioned five thirty seven uh, showed up to the event on day one. Um, <clears throat> so, was there anything that kind of stuck out from this tournament, guys, that you thought was interesting? Um, we'll go over the top eight in a minute, but uh, at least on day two, as far as the breakdown goes, uh, it's about as well as I expected. Um, four color controller check pile consistently does the same thing in Star City results, which is mm-hmm. make day two and then die. Mm-hmm. Um, this happened in their last few uh, legacy events where it was like somewhat of a popular deck for people to be on. They just never were able to really close things out. Yeah, that's the point. Uh, we're going to touch on that a little bit later, but you'll notice that Checkpile does well into like day two or like round five, six of competition, and then kind of falls mm-hmm. flat on its face a lot of the time. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, it doesn't even look like it put up a single copy in the top 32. Nope. Uh, and my which is re- which is really interesting. Yeah, my sources tell me that actually it didn't it failed at top 64 as well. Wow. Okay, so, so th- th- that's not a great conversion rate as far as making top eight from like the actual like just strong day two numbers to begin with right being the second most represented deck and failing to top 32 is kind of a big deal especially when the day two field is like 200 some people right right yeah Yeah, i mean this was what what did we say 123 people so Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's pretty that's pretty i don't want to say alarming because i don't think that's the correct term but uh it's certainly interesting at least um and we can something we can dive into why we i mean well let's talk about here why do you think that this deck kind of dies in day two i'll let lawrence start with this one Okay, because I'm really interested to hear your take on this. Yeah, Min and I have discussed this. Um, so if you look at the way the check pile lists are constructed, they're, they're mid-range decks without a clock. And that's just not really a good formula. Like, the reason decks like Jundra Shardless work is because you can cast your discard spells and you can kill your opponent before they draw anything good. Check pile is relying on casting its discard spells and then it's attacking you with Baleful Strix over and over. So, like... It can slowly nickel and dime you out of this card advantage game, but it can also just, like, draw dead cards. And, uh, you know, if it has a disjointed draw or its mana base doesn't work properly, which is very easy because the deck's mana base is horrible, um, you know, it'll just die. It also is doesn't run many counter spells, so while it can grind its opponents down, it can't stop the top of their deck. And... Um, that's kind of huge for anything wanting to play a control game. You need to have, you know, either a clock to kill people or, you know, a consistent card advantage engine or, like, counter spells to stop people from top-decking their good cards. Mm-hmm. Yep, I completely agree with everything Lawrence just said. And to kind of touch on that a little bit, Check Pile, um, kind of the origin of the deck was starting off towards, like, the end of the Miracles era of Legacy, uh, the Sense of Divine Top era of Legacy, I should say, where Thomas Marr, the, the check involved in check pile, um, created this like value-oriented deck that was three to four colors. He kind of tossed between the two and kind of played like 
this controlly based game with him to Turok, discard like other relevant discard pyroblasts etc to essentially create a better version of shardless bug but that also like played red and interactive spells instead of a really terrible creature like Baleful or excuse me um shardless agent mm-hmm. so it could actually play kind of an instant speed game a lot of the time and grab your opponent into dust that was kind of the premise of his deck it evolved into this four-color monstrosity with Hemdeturok being kind of the linchpin of the early interaction of the deck. And I think both that card is both great, but also kind of traps you a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not... Sorry, go on. It should also be noted that the early lists did run, like, two to three copies of Goyf to yes. kill people. Yes. And, and they're slowly phased out. Yep. So, yeah, there's no meant. clock anymore. No, no, that's fine. Um, yeah, there's no clock anymore. The original versions of the deck were like playing a little bit more aggressively, had some like goif, some more planeswalkers and things like that. Now they've kind of limited it into okay, we have uh, Leovold as our main like high premier threats, uh, Deathlord Shamans, Snapcasters, uh, Strixes, and in some cases people will be playing like random walkers like Liliana of the Last Hope or Trinity Nemesis themselves and so on, just to kill your opponent with something. And the deck kind of... It, it feels powerful a lot of the time because you're always doing something with your mana with, that's very powerful. And each of your cards are inherently built, built a two-for-one on your opponent. Like, Snapcaster Mage, Baleful Strix, Leovold, Coligan's Command, Deathrite Shaman kind of is a built-in two-for-one on its own. Mm-hmm. And Legacy has this thing where the answers don't necessarily line up super well with the threats every single time. So... Checkpile kind of became the deck to beat after Miracles got banned because Miracles lost this massive card selection engine and Checkpile just had good cards. It was a stack of good cards that mm-hmm. interacted with your opponent sometimes and eventually ground them into dust. Now, at these two last two big events, you've seen Eternal Weekend and um, SCGDC, you're going to see a lot of people kind of tilt their deck towards it. Maybe sometimes passively, maybe sometimes intentionally. Uh, for example... At Eternal Weekend, I saw a lot of like mono red Stompy decks, be it big red sneak attack or like the the Chandra Stompy deck, kind of at the top tables, pretty consistently into the tournament. Like I played against it twice that day, and that's saying something because that deck is pretty much designed to attempt to grind through Checkpile, because each of its top decks are terrifying and you can play through him pretty decently. And you're gonna you're gonna see this like him to Turok kind of dynamic constantly come back and forth. Like I know uh, buddies of ours that play Miracles, Anurag Das and Michael, or excuse me, Marcus Ewald. They from the Miracle side, they're like, oh, I'm terrified of him to Turok. If that card resolves, I lose. And I'm like, okay, yeah, him's a, a very great fear, but we can build our deck to play through that a little bit, right? So uh, a buddy of ours, Francis, started like playing and treat the angels again like in heavy numbers like more than one i guess and that was the big innovation that i took into that weekend just playing and treat the angels again because uh, like the dynamic we're reaching here is kind of how miracles adapted towards shardless bug like almost a year ago actually where we started playing predicts and entreats again in order to grind through the deck that was trying to grind it with us if your opponent can't clock you you don't particularly care about getting hemmed and that's my issue with Checkpile against Miracles. Yep, yep. Um, where the big issue comes from is keeping Deathrite Shaman off the board. That's mm-hmm. that and like their planeswalkers. Other than that, like, you know, the rest of their plan is kind of anemic against you. It seems like a deck that has 
a lot of answers but doesn't doesn't ask a lot of questions, right? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way of looking at it. Its game plan is very disjointed, and it's built to just throw cards at your face until you eventually stop drawing good cards, and then mm-hmm. it can eventually take you out. Like, looking at the Eternal Weekend results, there are, like, only two check pile lists that I'm seeing at a quick scan, and both of them are people who have top-aided Pro Tours. How much of it do you think is a skill factor with the day two issue in particular? Um, you know, I feel most people who are going to pick up uh, check pile are either experienced players or at least think they're experienced players. Um, and how much of it do you think it's just like, okay, day one, the field is a bit softer. Um, you know, they may be the end boss of their local F&M, and that's enough to take down kind of the more experienced players. But then once they get to day two, you know, that's when the uh, competition really stiffens up. Checkpile is very good in small fields. Uh, that's why it's, like, dominant on Moto, just because there's a lot of, like, a very inbred metagame. A lot of people playing Delver decks or Storm or whatever. Like, you can very easily, like, build a list to throttle Moto. The issue is once you get to an open field, you have to deal with, like, people's pet decks. You have to deal with the mono-red sneak attacks. You know, there's a guy who top 60 forward with Sylvan Plug. You have to deal with the Jun guy. There's just going to be like a lot more going on that you have to deal with, and Checkpile isn't really good at dealing with a wide array of decks. Yep, I I 100% agree with that. Like you're going to see Checkpile do really well at Legacy Challenges, Legacy like League of Results, and things like that. But at a wide open metagame where you're going to see like more Monoret Stomping, more more Eldrazi, more Aluren, more Enchantress. I'm just listing off decks at random here. It, it's <laughs> difficult to have a control deck that plays passively be able to answer or rather have answers to all of those things consistently enough to do well at an event at a big event i should say the other thing to take into account for moto is that uh if anyone's ever watched like legacy streams or has played online a good chunk of the time you know what your opponent's on just by having seen them play somewhere else or you know you look them up on mtg goldfish or whatever and Having a deck like Checkpile, like knowing what your opponent is on for game one mulligans is kind of huge. Yeah, it's it, that's actually a really a good point I didn't think about. That's yeah, like knowing your the the legacy grinders on Magic, Magic Online all relatively know one another or know of one another. So you're gonna see the, the dynamic a lot of the time. Like like pre ban miracles, you'll if you see MZ Frosty, you know he's on miracles usually. It, like now, if you see Louis CBR, he's on Grixis Delver almost 95% of the time. The other 5%, 5% he's on Eldrazi, so pick your poison there. You know, like, <laughs> you're you're going to see that dynamic a lot on Magic Online, and I think people fail to realize that a lot of the time. Yeah. There's definitely, like a, like you said, um, a big amount of, like, an inbred metagame on Magic Online for sure. I, I think it's gotten a lot closer recently, um, at, like, the past few months, but I, I still think it's kind of far away from a wide-open field that a big event would provide. Mm-hmm. But I will say, I will say, and, and correct me if you guys think I'm if I'm mistaken, but at least in the paper meta game, the format seems pretty pretty wide open right now. I mean, I know Grixis Delver and Leovold Control have been, uh, or rather, you know, like a check pile deck, have been pretty popular. But I like when we look at the the day two breakdown here, there's like a pretty healthy like smattering of different decks here. Uh, I think Deathrite Shaman is overwhelmingly like the best thing to be doing in the format. Yeah. That's that's totally that's a, f- a fair assessment I think. Like by somewhat of a margin, just pick whatever flavor of Deathrite deck. 
Uh, from there, it's kind of just play whatever you own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's basically play combo or play a Deathrite Shaman deck. It's kind of how I feel the meta is. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. There were there were is this, is, wait, is, is this is this the part of the podcast where you get to rag on Deathrite Shaman? Because I told you, oh, it's going to happen. No, that's, it's going to happen every later, episode. <laughs> that's later in the episode. You guys will get a chance to, to beat the dead horse that is Deathrite Shaman. Um, but I will, before we move on to kind of discuss the top eight in more in depth, I will say that there is always going to be something that's the best thing to do in the format. And that's just something that people are going to have to come to terms with. Oh, yeah. I 100% I agree with you. It's uh, definitely good to have a deck that has a targets on it, target on its back. When it's a single card that you're gunning for, it makes things a bit more ambiguous. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like when Miracles was the best deck, you knew what to metagame for. Even though people didn't actually metagame against Miracles, which was odd, uh, you knew it was there and you knew you had to like be good against it. Uh, with yeah, Deathrite Shaman, it's, you know, there's Grixis Delver, Four Color Delver, there's Checkpile, Bug Delver, um, El- Elves, <laughs> what else is there? Death Delver Esper, Delver. Esper Death Blade. Just, like, there's a list of different decks that are, like, all Deathrite decks, so you have to have those answers, but you also have, you have to have, like, unique plans against all of them, which kind of mm-hmm. makes things wonky. Something that the the Miracles deck I think was pretty strong, uh, at least at least being able to do, was having game against a lot of decks in the format. Yeah, I still think like, it does. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that, that's totally fair. Totally fair. Um, all right, so we can get into a little bit more of the day two meta game here, or rather the top eight meta game here. Well, um, real quick, that, real quick before sure. we move on, I just want to point out uh, whoever the player was playing Naya Deathblade, please see me after the podcast. <laughs> I would like to know what that is. <laughs> I'm guessing Naya Deathblade is actually um, Dark Maverick. That's, That's what guess. I'm guessing too. Because that doesn't make any sense otherwise. <laughs> right. It's I think it's just Star City Games and their ridiculous naming concepts. Yeah. <laughs> Punishing Maverick. For the love of God, please. Yeah. Please don't do that Sorry. to me. <laughs> Wait, did they actually do Punishing Punishing Maverick as well as no. Punishing Abzan? They, they, Punishing Abzan is what they call it. Oh, they call that's what they call Agro Lum. Yeah. I'm, I'm so tired of the naming conventions of Cons of Tarkir. Can we please get back to where we were? Like can we go back to Bug and Rug? It was so much more like interesting. I don't nah, particularly ag- care way. too much in some regards. Some decks make sense. Um, I do wish that they would just stick with things like Agrolome, because that's a pretty descriptive name for the deck. Mm-hmm. And when I hear Punishing Abzan, like, if, if you're a random player, like, say you're a modern guy, and you hear Punishing Abzan... You're not really sure what that means, but if you hear aggro right. loam, you're just like, oh, it's it's a life from a loam shell that's attacking your resources. Yeah, um, yeah, I guess I, I don't know. I'm just not a big fan of the the, the cons naming conventions. It wasn't my my favorite thing. Uh, but on to top eight. <clears throat> uh, so, so this top eight the, is actually really cool, by the way. I think it's uh, sweet. yeah, I agree. And something that something that kind of stuck out to me is we'll go into it in a minute, but just to run down the top eight here. Uh, we had uh, John Goss taking it down with Esper Deathblade. Uh, Matthew uh, Vuk coming in second with Punishing Abzan. Jerry, that's for you. Uh, Four Color Bob Lung, Wong. please, please. Four Color Lung. <laughs> uh, Bob Wong uh, on, on Grixis Delver, of course. He just top eights every 
every uh, legacy event that he attends. I know, right? I mean, he <laughs> created the format, so of course he's going to do well. <laughs> he created uh, the best deck, obviously. Pirate Zombie, for the record. <laughs> yes. Did you see his uh, his top eight profile when he says co-creator of Pirate yep. Zombie? Yep. <laughs> um, we had Colorless Odrazi coming in fourth, which is the deck I, I just want to touch on briefly later that seems to be making a bit of a resurgence. Um, Caleb Schur coming in fifth on Storm. Ryan Lesko, uh, friend of the cast, part of our Facebook page, um, also uh, making it in with Teamer Delver, which is super sweet. Yeah, mad uh, props to that speaking, guy. Speaking of resurgence... <laughs> Delver coming back. Oh, this is great. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I've been noticing it. it. I love it. Oh I'm actually God. like looking to rebuy rebuy trops now because I just kind of want to put it back together. I've played a few uh, leagues with the deck, and oh, stifling fetches is great. <sighs> so cool. <laughs> uh, Benjamin Nikolich um, on Grixis Delver coming in seventh, and Matt Caranda coming in yeah. eighth. Caranda with blue white control. Please, um, just call it Blue at Miracles. Like, Blue at Miracles, okay. <laughs> <laughs> coming, in, coming in eighth with Miracles. I find it um, odd that they switched from Miracles to Blue White Control when the deck is still just filled with Miracles. The guys so Channel Fireball did the same thing, and it's to, like, make it so that the decks appear to be different. Like, does it? So it doesn't make any sense. In your opinion, does it, play, does it play much more... Does it play very differently from... Miracles of six months ago. Let's talk about that after we talk about this. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be a that might be a deep dive we're going yeah. in on there. Um, yeah. So, just the top eight in general is pretty interesting. Um, I was really kind of tickled pink to see Eldrazi uh, making a second top eight. Um, it also top eight at EW. So, I'm, I'm really interested to hear what you guys think about that. Um, is it just because like a Chalice deck is really strong right now? Do you think it's because like a like just a Stompy deck in general that's going to just put out a bunch of big creatures, is also really strong right now. Interested to hear your guys' thought on that. So Eldrazi is weird because people don't respect it a lot now. or Well, they will now, obviously, but leading up to these two tournaments, they wouldn't have expected it. They would be like, okay, the best Chalice deck is Mono Red Stompy, or be it like Mono Red Sneak or the Chandra deck. I know like a lot of people were talking about how Magic Online, Eldrazi was nowhere. It was all like the Mono Red decks. So once people start skimping on their Chalice plus Reality Smasher hate, uh, that's when the deck will do well again. And this is, this happens in cycles pretty much, pretty consistently, I'd say, since Eldrazi became a deck. Mm-hmm. I think also, like, for what it's worth, like, I remember when Eldrazi first came around and I, I started playing the deck, one of its best matchups and something that it really depended on was, was Miracles, because um, mm-hmm. it felt like that was a really good matchup for the deck. Well, not really good, but, like, a very solid matchup for the deck. Um, and with that deck, with Miracles not being as re- prevalent in the metagame, I think maybe like some of the food, or people may believe that some of the food that that deck was feeding on uh, just wasn't around and maybe made the deck a little bit more anemic. But obviously that deck is doing just fine these last two tournaments, so I'm sure we'll see a little bit more Eldrazi hate out there after I this week. I actually feel the opposite. Uh, Eldrazi was tough to beat when people didn't really understand how the deck functioned. And would keep horrible hands or whatever. Uh, but once you learned how to play against the deck from the Miracles side, the matchup wasn't really that bad and often just boiled down to Chalice of the Void or Bust. Um, yeah, Chalice of the Void turns out is a very polarizing magic card. It, it, it changes a lot of math when you're talking about like magic matchups. Mm-hmm. Well, can, do you want to talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Uh, well, okay, I'm going to use a Bob Huang quote here, who is also probably quoting someone else when he says this, but 
if you're playing a deck like Pre-Band Miracles or today's Grixis Delver even, I think this applies pretty heavily too, if you can cast your spells, you can win the game. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's Chalk a Noah Void. Walker quote. Sorry, go on. That's a Noah Walker quote. Right. Excuse me, that's a Noah Walker quote. Exactly. Um, Child of the Void kind of takes that dynamic away from you, so it takes away the importance of your opening hand a lot of the time when you're playing a blue deck. It takes away a lot of your <coughs> ability to come back into a game if you're playing a blue deck. So taking that element out of the equation gives you a lot of free wins. And okay, that's, that's essentially what Eldrazi is doing. Eldrazi backs it up with a really fast clock. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes it slightly worse against the perceived best deck in the format, being Checkpile. But it's still pretty decent. And then when you see Checkpile not doing so well, you see these mono red decks kind of going into feast on it. And you have this like weird dynamic going on where your Chalice decks are a coin flip between what they're attacking and what they're not. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really inter- that's a really interesting take on it. Yeah, I think I, I think we'll probably see like the deck fall out of favor a little bit here now. But um, I always like to see Eldrazi making it a top. Eight. I just like seeing a Stompy deck making it deep in a day two. It always just kind of tickles me pink a little bit. <clears throat> uh, so, kind of diving into the rest of this list, was there anything that kind of stuck out to you guys you wanted to discuss in the top eight? Um, well, I just really liked so Esper Deathblade took it down. And we also saw Esper Deathblade at Eternal Weekends last week, but they are two incredibly different lists, like almost so, different decks. I would consider them completely different decks, and I wouldn't call the deck from Eternal Weekend Esper Deathblade at all. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you What would you classify it? I as? would classify it as Esper Mentor Blade, or something along those lines. Partially because of the deck, partially because I know and am friends with the person who played it and created it, so to speak. His words, not mine. I, uh, I agree. The, I the would just call honey, it Honey Pile. Sorry, go on, Lawrence. Oh, I would just call it Honey Pile. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, honey uh, Pile number seven, to be to be exact. Number seven, God. I've seen that you guy. You don't even know, sp- dude. <laughs> Remember the Team Serious Open where his vintage deck was vintage countertop? Yes. <laughs> and he top eight at that event. Yeah. Yeah. So Honey on the is the gentleman that we're speaking of who top eight Eternal Weekend with Esper Mentor Blade. Um, he's actually a pretty good friend of mine. He's a local Columbus player. He kind of went in and out of Magic like over the past few years. He like, started playing Legacy in like, 2003, 2004, and was an avid member of the Source. He created the original Miracle Thread back when it was like countertop control. Um, he's really, really... like he, he finds these broken engines and tries to make a deck out of them. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Like He created this Worm Harvest deck with four Jace the Mind Sculptors and like loam as an engine in raven's crime it was like uh, this kind of crazy looking deck it was in tomb young pyromancer that deck was a meme it was great (laughs) uh that's actually two different decks and that they well there might be an evolution of one deck i don't really know um but yeah he actually uh, he was playing the esper mentor deck um for a couple of months leading up to and past the ban and working on it for months and months and months so i'm really happy to see him do well with with an ad eternal weekend because a lot of people just didn't know how to play against him yeah. Well, so just as a comparison, so I have the deck side by side here. Uh, the creature base of John Gosses, who won the Star City event, was two Baleful Strix, four Deathrite Shaman, one Snapcaster, four Stoneforge, four True Name, two Leovolds. Uh, Hani's list, the creature base, is just a neat four Deathrite Shaman, four Monastery Mentor, four Stoneforge Mystic. Um, so that, that right there is just pretty diverse in just you know what it's trying to do um you know 
this John John Goss's list is really all about you know getting that Stone Forge, getting those equipment. He has four true name nemesis to really take advantage of that. Um, it seems like he's just kind of a bit more aggressive uh, than Hani's list. What do you guys think? I just think it's sweet that these 2014 decks are showing up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with new toys. <laughs> yeah, rugged over, bugged over, all those things. Absolutely. Uh, Speaking of uh, the Rug Delver pilot, Ryan, he's actually a local uh, player. Uh, I've met him. He's a real good guy. Uh, he, he is a very good Rug Delver pilot, so I'm not surprised to see him do well. Yeah, I've seen him on the source and talked to him like once or twice, and he's pretty avid on there as a, as a member. And uh, seeing him do well with Tarmogoyfs is kind of a big deal. I, I was reading his like tournament mini tournament report, and he's like, yeah, people are overvaluing the, the whole dice to fatal push concept. And Tarmogoyf beats Hootie Mandrels a lot of the time in the mirror match, which I'm weird. It's weird to me that he's considering the Rug Delver mirror match as a factor, but sure. <laughs> I've been playing a bit of Rug Delver online, and I haven't tested Hooting Mandrels, but I haven't wanted it. Outside of facing down True Name Nemesis, Goyf has just been better. Being able to actually play it on turn two is nice, and a lot of the times a Mandrels would just nuke your graveyard. Um, in, unless it's super, super late in the game, you're often only going to have, like, nine-ish cards in the yard, and uh, I I personally just like the Goyf better. Yeah, it's like a, a dis-synergy versus synergy concept, right? Like, I've always thought the Red Delver was the most one of the most elegant decks ever created, devised, however you want to call it. And mm-hmm. seeing two very different lists do exceptionally well makes me really happy. Oh yeah, because Jading top uh, sixty four with it or thirty two. Well, I was talking about Eric Virgo uh, at Eternal Weekend with uh, Hootie Mandrels Red Delver versus the other one. So ah, okay, yeah. I think it's important to definitely compare the two tournaments since they were so close to one another. Yeah, I agree. Uh, The deck has seen a decent number of results recently. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, So, after that tangent, back to the Esper Deathblade. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right, so... I'm sorry, there's one thing I wanted to address regarding the, the, the difference between the two main decks. mm -hmm. Deathblade and um, Mentor Blade, so to speak. I think it's important to note that Hani's main threats cannot be Red Elemental Blasted or Pyroblasted. And I think that was a very cognizant decision for him. Partially because I know he made that decision based on that factor. Um, so I'm cheating a little bit there, but I think it's important to note because... <laughs> Such Check insight! Pile, well, well, Checkpile is a deck that kind of does the whole Snap Pyroblast or Pyroblast Snap Pyroblast thing a lot of the time mm-hmm. when it's trying to outground your opponent. And if your premier threat goes wide and also doesn't die to Red Elemental Blast, Pyro Blast, like the one card engine that uh, Checkpile is kind of w- waiting for you to play against, it's a lot harder for them to line up cards against you. Also, Checkpile naturally invalidates Stoneforge Mystic a lot of the time. Correct. So, like, not having your whole deck just kind of fall straight into their removal package is really nice. Yeah, like, Trick Piles are playing Diabolic, Diabolic Edicts and stuff like that, too, to play specifically against the Cartoon and Emesis and so on. To be fair, though, I think both cards are both decks are pretty well equipped to beat Edict effects. It just mm-hmm. It's kind of a question of which route you want to go and which things you want to be soft to and win hard and, like, better to play against. Mm-hmm. 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about, also about Hani's uh, Cabal Therapy, uh, Gitaxian Probe, Monastery Mentor, uh, win package compared to you know the more traditional John Goss's list, which is just kind of like uh, Force of Will. For he's running like four Thoughtsees. Sure. Um, so Hani, when I said earlier, was that Hani finds these kind of disruptive and good engines and builds decks around them. Uh, the deck originally was like this probe therapy, but also countertop control deck. So Monastery Mentor kind of slid in perfectly because it complemented both of those angles of attack. Now, with the top ban, obviously, you can't have the counterbalance top engine in that sort of shell as easily. But the, the core concept, the one half of the brokenness of that whole thing still exists. So he's kind of relying heavily on probe therapy as a way to combat combo decks and kind of relying on Mentor to be the fair engine, whereas John Goss's list is a little bit more brute forcey. Like, it's using its mana every single turn in some sort of proactive way. It doesn't necessarily rely on knowing what the opponent is playing with its widespread breadth of, like, hand disruption. It just kind of does its own... It, it requires less moving pieces, I think, is a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John Goss's list definitely feels more of a tap-out list, where it's just trying to play... You know, whatever the best card in its hand is, you know that's almost going to be what it's going to play that turn. Uh, just like jam those, like jam those pieces into play, and just kind of brute force your uh, your board state into existence. This is mostly just like the OG Deathblade list with like barely enough blue cards for Force of Will. Right. Leo, <laughs> Leovold and True Name were great additions because they finally could have like more than nineteen. You know. Blue cards, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it it literally it wants to be dead guy ale if but it just needs brainstorm. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I think both decks are pretty tap outy. Uh, they're kind of wanting to be proactive but also disrupt your opponent at the same turn a lot of the time. I, I think uh, John's list is more deadly under a tr- and under a death or shaman than Hani's is, but it's pretty close to one or the other. And one is really good, so. One is just more of a creature-based approach, and the other is more of a spell-based approach. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Definitely agree with that. You could also kind of look at it as, uh, you know, John's list is more of Voltron, get a true name suited up, uh, whereas, you know, uh, Hani's list is more go wide with all your mentor tokens. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agreed. Nice. Uh, what else we got from the top eight? Anything else uh, catch your guy's eye? Uh... The one thing I guess we can talk about later... Well, there's two things. One, Bob Wong is a master. Uh, he is, he's very, very good at magic. This is not the Bob Wong uh, love show. We can't we can't let his ego get too big. Uh, I would be happy to let his ego get as big as he wants it to be, I guess. I don't, I don't know what to say about that. Um, but the one, the one thing I really want to touch on, and we can talk about this later, of course, too, uh, when we bring it up, is Matt Caranda's Blue, White, and Miracles list is playing two copies of... Search for us, Kanta. Oh, which I think is really cool. And we were talking. Uh, Lawrence and I are part of uh, like a chat group, and we're with a bunch of buddies like Anurag and all that jazz. The Miracles we Cabal 3.0 at this point. 4.0 actually. <laughs> Four. God. 4.0. Yeah. Um, Macarena's list is really cool, and it has playing this card that kind of has us all excited. Search for us, Kanta, and we're all like kind of talking about trying it in different ways. So we'll definitely talk about that later, but I just wanted to point that out, that his list is really sweet, and it's, and it's solely blue-white. It has no red sources, no red spells. Nice. 
Um, I do like the uh, Aggro Loam list, too. Uh, Matthew Luke played. Uh, we've been seeing uh, Aggro Loam show up more and more. And I just want to point out, the one of Rudimap Excavator seems pretty stock now, which I feel that is a big upgrade for the deck. I know that's scary. <laughs> yeah. I know Matt's oh my god, under a, under a Ghost Quarter lock? God, that is brutal. I know Matsula isn't running the Rudimap Excavator. I think he's running a... Um... A Johnny Vengeance in that spot, but I really like the construction of this list. Um, often when you see Agrolome lists, people try to get too cute and run everything just because they can, and like it's very obvious that he that Matthew put the hours in to test the deck and knows exactly what he wants and needs. Um, you know, like you don't come to four abrupt decay, three punishing fire specifically sometimes you'll see those numbers flipped sometimes you'll see a 3-3 split um i do find it interesting that he isn't running ghost quarter when i played agrolome i found yeah. that card to be just insane um mm. he's opted for cabal pit which i think is still fine in the deck i haven't played it in a while um yeah I think, yeah, Cabal Pit is more of a nod towards Grixis Delver, whereas I feel Ghost Quarter would be more against Check Pile. Um, Cabal Pit is more of a nod towards Death and Taxes. That uh, too. Just Sanctum uh, Prelate cutting off your removal package is, off for, is awful for you. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, Cabal Pit was actually a direct response to Sanctum Prelate. It's awkward against... Uh, what's the... Against Grixis Delver because of Death Rate Shaman... Um, if that card gets going, it can kind of keep your Cabal Pit turned off, but... Mm, that's true. Otherwise, you know, everything looks fine. He's not playing Reclamation Sage in the main, which I think is fine, uh, because he has the four decays, so that's going to cover most things that Rex Sage would answer. Uh, I would be interested in hearing his reasoning, though. I think there are a few troublesome permanents that would be interesting, or would be, you know, prime Rex Sage targets, but... I guess otherwise you're fine. See, the real problem with this list is it's not running Titania Priestess of Aragoth as its 61st card. That's the biggest mistake. <laughs> I'll be honest, I don't even know what that card does. I don't really care. <laughs> it's, it's not a relevant Jerry, card. Like, you don't Jerry, it is we, so relevant. <laughs> Jerry, it's we all know Vinecraft. Right? Jerry. It's a 5-3. Whenever a land, when it comes into play, return a land from your graveyard to play, and whenever yeah. a land you control goes to the graveyard, make a 5-3 token. I'm yeah, so I'm tired of hearing you talk about this card, and also mispronounce the name, Jerry. Every we all time. know Vinecrusher Centaur is the best sweet fun of an aggro loam. No, screw Vinecrusher. Oh, come on. <laughs> I also don't know what that card does, nor do I really care. <laughs> <laughs> You have to understand, most of these cards predate me. But not, but not really. I, I was born in 93, so... It just dies to Terminus, man. That's all you need to okay, know. Okay, that, that's all that matters, then. Got it. Got it. <laughs> all men cares about. Yeah. Most things die to Terminus, so I don't care about a lot of stuff. Uh, okay, one last thing, I guess, before we move on to anything out of the open. Uh, I wanted to give a shout-out to our buddy Michael Coyle, coming in 16th place with his awesome Stacks deck. Oh, hell yeah. I love yeah, Coyle's Stacks like list. Uh, his, his his deck is basically a metalworker lock deck that plays like pretty much solely lock pieces, and its win condition is metalworker beatdown. Yeah, it every kills you. Everyone I've seen worker. look at the deck goes, "Wait, you don't have any win cons in the main." 
and it's often just his opponents scooping because they either can't cast spells or they just are tired of not playing magic. So when so I before, saw Metalworker, I assumed they meant mud, and this is not a mud deck. It is no. not a mud deck. It's no. no, it's it's pure misery. He's actually he's been playing the deck for about a year and a half, or almost a, or maybe around a year. And when he originally created it, its winning conditions were Metalworker and a one copy of God's Eye Gate to the Ray Guy, or I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, I remember what? that variant. <laughs> yeah. He would sack it to stacks, make the one-one token, start attacking, and then he would recur it with Crucible Worlds. Funny yeah, story about it's a about colorless land that taps that says when God's Eye Gates of the Red Eye is put into the graveyard from the battlefield, create a one-one colorless spirit creature token. Oh jeez. This list but also is what inspired Rich Shay's Vintage deck from last year. Yep. Um, so interestingly year, enough, champs. Yep. The lock pieces include four Chalice, four Crucible, four Ensnaring Bridge. Uh, four smoke snack, excuse me. Four smokestack, one sorcerer spyglass, uh, one staff of domination, two tangle wire, and four three balls. That is, that is a miserable. That is a we miserable. We should also point out that there's against. four copies of serum powder in this deck to make sure his turn one hands are always busted. Right. That is. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> In all honesty, you should try playing this deck out if you would like prison elements at all. I think it's actually quite good, unless people prepare for it. It 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 reminds me of stasis, like old school stasis, which is only win condition was your opponent decking themselves. And I wonder how this ever does well in a competitive standpoint, because all you need to do is run into that one opponent to just say, no, show me the win. Oh, he kills you with Metalworker. Yeah, he literally kills you with Metalworker. Yeah, so he taps on all. He taps on all. He keeps all of your permanents tapped down with Metalworker staff and kills you with a one-two. Uh, you think I'm joking? That's <laughs> actually what happened. I have, I, I've watched. That takes him so do it. long. <laughs> How many draws does he get? None. He He's really fast. <laughs> His I guess you would have to be. Scoop. Like people often just scoop at zero permanents on board. Oh man, I might have to run this in a league on like on Magic Online. I feel this is an auto timeout on Magic Online because even if you're even oh, if you're fast, so many triggers. Yeah, even if you're fast, there are just so many triggers and things you have to react to. It's like you're gonna time out no matter what. I would so, never like, touch not even, this on Moto. Even even his even his like land package is made to make you like make you miserable with four port four wasteland. Yep, four port four wasteland four, four inventor four inventors fair. That card There's is a tutor in his deck. I know insane. it's still ridiculous. I'm surprised he doesn't have Ghost Quarters in this iteration. I could have sworn he originally he had played them. Ghost Quarters, but it, but I I told him the argument basically of like Ghost Quarter lands, like the whole thing is Ghost Quarter makes your better matchups or your good matchups better. Port makes your bad matchups better. I guess is the kind mm-hmm. of dynamic I'm kind of, we're, we're trying to talk about. Uh, he 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 kind of swaps between the two a lot of the time. So I think this iteration he thinks that Port's better against the field, and I kind of agree with that. Uh, just against the decks he's more scared of, I guess, is a better way of putting it. I also just like, this deck feels like it's, to me, when you're running, like, four ofs, like, in all your entire land package and almost all your spell package, it just feels like he knows exactly what he wants this deck to be doing. You know what another, I mean? Another reason for not playing Ghost Quarters is um, a decent number of his lands sacrifice themselves at some point, and I've playtested against Mike with, like, Grixis Delver, and... A, couple well-timed wastelands and forcevilles can awkwardly like stall this deck out so just having yeah. a stack of wasteland effects or like past the first four 
is probably more of a liability than it is, you know, a boon. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's it, it kind of wants a lot of its mana most of the time. You can play around days pretty comfortably after like turns three or four, but the early turns against any days deck is pretty is pretty dicey, and Port helps a lot with that. Uh, also, shout out to our friend uh, Caleb Comptois. Ah, you he made uh, top thirty two at the uh, at DC as well. That was gonna be my freaking scoop in. Ruined it. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. <laughs> Gotta think of another one real fast. Uh, I'm gonna have an anti scoop in for freaking Star City Games for putting video ads with sounds on their deckless pages. So I just have like this woman talking in Spanish in my ear while I'm trying to record this episode. <laughs> it's 2017 and you don't use ad block on regular places. Well, no, I support the local businesses, man. There are exception lists, sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so before we move on, was there anything else you guys wanted to discuss as far as the uh, the DC Open goes? Um, no, I think I'm I'm all set. I know we kind of we kind of kind of glossed over real quick, but we got a lot to talk about tonight. Someone got yeah. DQ'd. Oh yeah, we, so yeah, why don't we oh, talk right. about that real quick? Since, yeah, so, so I I was not witness to the DQ, nor do I know the entire story. So if you guys could sort of tell us. Um, and we can kind of use this as a cautionary tale for our listeners out there. Right. So I, I'm not going to name names here just so we can keep the player's, um, reputation clear because he's not, he wasn't cheating or anything like that. What happened was basically a kind of a miscommunication where, uh, the player was at table one, uh, pretty much a lot for top eight. And he asked his opponent about prize splitting before results were concluded. And thus judges deemed him that this was considered bribery and therefore disqualified him. That's the long and short of it. Uh, in my opinion, never prize split. You avoid this problem entirely. Mm-hmm. Always no sir people and just move on with your life. Play magic the way it's meant to be played. That, that's my personal opinion. I, I usually choose not to prize split. It's kind of a relatively new thing for me, I guess. But I, I, I hate even there being, like... It requires you to have two law degrees and a thesis in law in order to <laughs> properly discuss a prize split cleanly at a magic tournament, and I hate that aspect of it, so and I'm never going to do it. And that's only assuming that the the deck isn't stacked against you and you have a judge who has a personal vendetta against prize splits, because there are many of those judges who exist who don't think prize splitting should be allowed at all. The judge does also have to be in a good mood. That's... I've heard, I've seen some sketchy prize splits happen, but the judge is just kind of, eh, whatever. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, it, is, like it, it, it's so is, inconsistent. Yeah, that's 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 my biggest issue with it, is that, like, I, I don't, I truly don't know how to offer a prize split, so I generally will not, will, uh, won't even let that thought, like, come across my mind, uh, because... Pat, don't, don't worry, you won't be in that situation very often, that's okay. <laughs> <Fuck> Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> It really depends on the situation, though. At larger tournaments, I think prize splitting is more of a sketch scenario because you have to, like, get the person's PayPal and then make sure they come through because often those types of prize splits involve someone scooping to the other to, like, mm-hmm. make sure they get max cash prize mm-hmm. splitting. You can do it like, in separate sentences, though. That's key. Yeah. Uh, prize splitting at IQs is, like, easier, I guess, but, like... You can only prize split if somebody top eights because of the way the IQ payout works. So mm-hmm. basically, you have to scoop to someone in top eight, um, which is all often an awkward ordeal. Um, mm-hmm. 
it gets even more awkward when it's not even cash. Like I've been in so many top eight, uh, like win a duel Fun tournaments. Bump. Yeah. Yeah. Like win a duels. And it's like, like me and Josh Sissio still have like a prize split to work out from like three years ago because it's like, I got a black border volcanic and he got a tundra, but it's like, how do you, how do you split a black border volcanic and a tundra? <laughs> how do you split half. that? 50-50? Right down the middle. <laughs> yep, yeah. See, in Each those situations, you just have to like do it by store credit, right? Mm-hmm. Or you'd have to sell yeah. both cards and then equalize the value or something and that's just way more hassle the most suspect thing about this scenario is a guy talking about price splits when he was at table one of an open i I imagine both guys at table one could probably lose and still top eight and that whole scenario just seems pretty loose to me yeah Yeah, it was it was was really suspect was he talking about price building once they got into top eight so I don't know. I don't know the specific details. Um, nor do I really care that much. It's basically like, just just don't discuss price splitting unless a top eight, like unless you're in the finals of a tournament or like, or you're at a small local event. You know what I mean? Like a weekly mm-hmm. or something. I don't like those price splits. Don't matter that much to me. Like at a big event, I'm never gonna price split. I'm never going to want to price split. I'm never going to even like consider it because a the language is so ambiguous. It it's like a toss-up between you getting what you want and getting kicked out of the tournament. The only way I'd price split at a large event is if, like, the last round I sit across from one of my friends. And yes, I've actually, that I agree with. I've done this before where I get paired up against a friend the last round. We look at who's higher standing, and then the other guy just scoops to them. Yep. Yeah. But again, like, that, the, the issue with that is that it's not really... That's not a clean workaround for the Watsi restrictions on price splitting because that is just like that is just like um, a matter that, of convenience and familiarity that just kind of more more or less promotes like and I'm not saying that this is the case for you but like when people are buddy buddy and they're able to do price splits like that I think that promotes or at least has a worse look of collusion than anything else. You know what I, I mean? I think the like concept of collusion is so vague in Magic. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I know Caleb Durward's been DQ'd from an SCG Open the last round when neither he or his opponent were playing for top eight for trying to arrange a play split and just wording it incorrectly. And then Mm -hmm. there was the whole Oliver 2 thing um, where he basically was just like, I don't care about the money from this GP. I just want the the pro points Mm -hmm. and was trying to arrange some sort of concession. I'll PayPal you later, which... I, some people looked at it as bribery. I kind of don't care about it. I think, like, where I kind of stand morally on those is you should be able to do that if you want to. Like, if one guy cares about only a chunk of the prize and the other guy doesn't, you should be able to work something out without, you know, fear of disqualification or being right. you know, it, disbarred. It would be one. Th- it would be one thing if you're bribing people. And it's just like literally money on the line. Like I'll give you this much and I get this much. But when you ha- when you have these like ambiguous prizes, like an invite to a pro tour or dual lands or stuff like that, it's just like people need to be able to work out and actually get something that they want for the tournament that they entered into. I think what gets me the most is just how much wording plays into it. It's you know there's hey I'll give you the cash if you scoop to me or if you scoop to me we'll split. And then there's, you know, some really roundabout way of putting things that doesn't, you know, 
get judges on your back and i think it's just such a sketchy system that really needs to be um cleared up from watsy's side there needs to be more like concrete rules of what you can and can't say you know um i've seen a lot of people like try and discuss prize splits next to a judge and if it's a cool judge they'll go hey guys you're getting really close to getting disqualified and then there's just the judges who are just sitting there waiting. It's like, yeah, can't wait to fill out that disqualification paperwork. <laughs> Keep going. Well, I, I think I do think that most judges probably don't want to disqualify someone, but there are probably also also other judges who are by nature hyper vigilant for that stuff and might consider that might take that a lot more seriously than, than you know what I mean. I, I don't want to talk for judges, but um, it is their job to like enforce those rules. But again, like we said earlier, the enforcement seems so suspect and so uh, it, it, it's just not it's not equal all the time. You know what I mean? For what it's worth, speaking from a judge's perspective, like okay, I'm not a judge, but I'm friends with a lot of judges, and even for them, like the instruction on how to enforce something like that is so ambiguous. It's not necessarily their fault. It's like, yeah. like enforcing slow play. Nobody right, really exactly. knows what it is. It's very similar to that regard. Like that conversation that has to happen is so inc- inconsistent across the board, they're never taught how to do it, you know? Like, it, it's it's really difficult to kind of parse something that should belong in, like, a law exam book into a magic tournament where you have different people, different personalities, different dynamics at work, different mentalities, and it's just really hard to kind of conglomerate all of that into one thing. It's just not a thing you can do. I think what gets a lot of people is that judges aren't really allowed to, like, help you word things. So, like, you can't, you know, unless you're friends with a judge, you can't really go up to them and go, hey, I want to offer this sort of prize slit to my opponent. How do I word this so that I don't get disqualified? A lot of judges just, like, won't tell you. You know the trick with that, Lawrence? You go up to them and go, Judge, hypothetically, if I was in another tournament, not this one, but a hypothetical other <laughs> tournament, and I wanted to offer my opponent a prize split, what would be a way to word it so that I would not get in trouble? I've used I've used that numerous times, and it works every time. That just sounds like a good way to sit down and have, like, three judges standing right behind you. <laughs> good. I want multiple opinions so that there's no confusion or, uh, you know, miscommunication when we take action. <laughs> uh so yeah basically either be safe like men and never prize split or uh study up on your law degree <laughs> uh what did we have up next uh are we oh we we doing a little check pile little check pile action we kind of already covered that we did a little bit but uh i think it was more in play and you know, Min, you kind of wanted to compare check pile to miracles. Yeah, so we can kind of like talk about this a little bit because um, we kind of had two de facto best decks, uh, like the, the, the six months ago versus now, that kind of thing. Uh, check pile, we co- like I said, I don't want to kind of re- reiterate too much of what we talked about earlier, but check pile is a control deck with Death Watch Shaman, Leave Old, Snapcaster Mage, and Jace, Liliana, what have you. It's four colors, it plays good cards, it tries to control the game by discarding you, two for one in your turn, and eventually grinding you into the into, into the ground. Um, and we talked about how we didn't it didn't see so much in, results in paper because it's difficult to maintain that in a big, wide-open field. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, I, I just feel like it, it's more difficult for Czech Pal to play from behind than 
anything else. And in an open field, you're going to have to do that a lot if your answers don't align up well with your opponent's threats. Um, the reason I wanted to compare it a little bit to Miracles, because uh, a stat I want to talk about actually is that Miracles has had better paper results over the past few uh, tournaments than Checkpile has. And I think that's kind of a big deal. And we're talking about new Miracles, like the deck that everyone thinks sucks. The the Portent deck, I guess is a bit better way of like kind of phrasing it. And I think that's kind of important because that deck is more designed to play from behind. Maybe by virtue of constantly being behind because it's cards suck, uh, as some people would say, but I don't want to address that too, too much. Well, you uh, actually have sweepers. Just like the yes. deck is built as a true control deck where check pile isn't. So like you have your removal plus your counter spells plus your sweepers to keep your opponent at parity any of your draw spells to get ahead. Um, Checkpile is built like a modern deck, actually. Playing it feels a lot like playing modern Grixis Control, where you're just like Snapcaster Coligan's command, and then you have like another arbitrary two for one, and like Crypt Command or him in this case. You're just nickel and diming your opponent out of the game. Um, right. And like, so the reason I wanted to compare it to Miracles is that Miracles actually has tools to play from behind pretty consistently. And the reason I kind of still played it, or played it right after the bat happened, is I was never at all interested in ever getting to a Deathrite Shaman Mirror. I know that sounds kind of like silly to say. Maybe I'm just like a terrible Magic player and I never learned the skill to play a Mirror match like that, but I just never want to play a fair Mirror match. A super fair Mirror match like that. Most Deathrite Shaman Mirror matches I've played have consisted with someone playing Deathrite Shaman on turn one, untapping with it, and being significantly ahead. Um... Like, the last time I played a Grixis Delbermere online, my opponent had turn one Deathrite Shaman, I didn't have the removal spell, and they won that game. Game two, I had turn one Deathrite Shaman, they didn't have the removal spell, and I won, and then game three, like, they just rolled me again, because turn one Deathrite. Um, it just provides such an insane advantage in those fair matchups. Um, you know, we it's the same phenomenon we saw in Modern when Deathrite Shaman was legal, uh, the turn one death right, turn two Lily, turn three a Johnny or Bloodbraid Elf or whatever four drop they were playing, and uh, into into Gerald's messenger. <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that pro tour was a mess. Dude, that pro tour was a meme. There was something was so funny. There was something like twelve. I I remember going through and counting it. There was like twelve death right shaman feature matches. <laughs> yes, uh, and then the winner was Stanislav Sipka on L on uh, excuse me eggs. You mean on Supreme Verdict or not Supreme Verdict? Jesus, Leyline of Sanctity blanking your deck. Yes, yes. <laughs> so that was the funniest PT I've seen. In, I've, I've watched coverage for I think ever. That Pro Tour Finals was almost embarrassing. Is like the Marvel Pro Tour. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, but yeah, we're digressing horribly here. Yeah. Basically, I, I don't want to like kind of I don't want to go on a soapbox rant about miracles, but I think the deck is really good. Uh, I think it's obviously worse than it used to be before the ban, but I think the tools it has are more consistent than people give it credit for, and I think that the fact that it's seen so, like more much, so much so many more results in paper than not is no fluke. The skill disparity between a medium Miracles player and a good Miracles player is a lot wider now than it was before the ban, because it's a lot harder to play. But I don't think it's so wide that people just... I, I, I don't know how to put this, basically. I just 
I think people kind of look at the deck, see the terrible cards in it, like Portent, and kind of just <laughs> say, oh, this card is terrible. Sue's saying, Sue's saying yes or no. Um, <laughs> Sometimes. So I tried it, and I kind of like it, but not enough to ever register for a big event yet. So I can chime in uh, on what Men is trying to say here. With Old Miracles, like the core of the deck was super powerful and you could just backdoor your way into ma winning matches or games that you shouldn't have. Uh, so what that did is it carried a lot of players who weren't super skillful with the deck. Uh, they could just play top on one, counterbalance on two, and win. Uh, with New Miracles, you actually have to manage your resources a lot better. Like Old Miracles, you would do stuff like turn one on the play... EOT brainstorm to set up a predict or whatever, which you still kind of do, or you would do it to set up a counterbalance or, you know, you would spew your cantrips fairly often because you had top to like bridge the gap. With new miracles, you have to pace your cantrips a lot differently. Uh, you know, you aren't playing 60% of a game knowing the top three cards of your deck always. You may only know 40% now. Yeah, I was gonna say 30, but. Uh, sure. You know, you the way you use your resources is a lot different, and there are way more constrictions, and you have to be a little more uh, disciplined in how you go about things. Right. Like, I am by no means the best Miracles player. I've just played it a lot, and I have I, I've surrounded myself with the best Miracles players, so I learn from them as much as I possibly can. And the biggest thing I've noticed is that the deck isn't as inherently powerful as it used to be, but that's okay because a lot of decks in Legacy aren't necessarily prepared to play against the card Terminus anymore. And once people let their shields down and forget how to play the card, you're going to win a lot. That's part of why Red um, Delver is good right now. Or, well, getting better. People have really forgotten how to play around Stifle. Um, yep. You know, people fet cracking fetches in the upkeep hasn't been very common when I've played the deck. It's People have just been walking straight into it. Yeah, the the other the whole untap upkeep fetch versus end step fetch dynamic gives you so many wins, like so many wins. If you're playing Redelver. If people don't know that basic skill and legacy, and sometimes it's incorrect, obviously, but more often than not, it's it's correct to do that. You're gonna have kind of a a, a good time if you're playing that deck for sure. I talked to Eric um, Virgo, the guy who top aided uh, Eternal Weekend with uh, Redelver. And he said a lot of his wins were based pretty much on solely on that dynamic. His opponents failed to untap and crack their fetches and didn't have the ability to play around Stifled Days. Like, that. that's all it was. Yeah. Yeah, that's been my experience. Also, getting today's people's force wills on your turn one mongoose is <laughs> the best feeling ever. It's pretty good, yeah. Out, well, I, I, okay, I it's, it's second to blind predicting and hitting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's kind of the whole miracle spiel I wanted to kind of address. I think the deck is better than people will give it credit for, and I strongly recommend people try it, or at least try playing against it before mm -hmm. kind of dismissing the fact that a deck with portent is irrelevant. Or, excuse me, a deck with portent being relevant. <laughs> yeah, deceptively powerful, I think. Deceptively yes. good, for sure. Yes, I think in the hands of a, of, of a skilled enough pilot, I think the, the deck is pretty scary, but I think that kind of that statement kind of applies to pretty much every deck in Legacy, so... Pilot dependency is a big factor in why the format's great. The barrier of entry for the deck is just significantly jumped, so. Yep. All right. Um. All right. So if we're if we're good, if we want to put a, a pin in that for now, 
We actually had some awesome questions from our uh, Patreon Discord channel, if we want to get into that. And these were questions that we were actually going to cover last week. But since the episode ran so long, and because we were having two really kind of great ep- uh, guests on this episode, I figured we could kind of go over them. Um, and Jerry, so I'm going to have you answer the first one, just because the first part of it does kind of address uh, your um, your uh, run at EW. Um, but also, I think like there's also a greater question here, which we're going to address afterwards. But um, Ancient Corwin did ask, so what, when you started to falter EW, because you started off on a pretty hot streak, um, and mm-hmm. then it sort of went off the rails. Um, do you can you recall the play or the hand <laughs> or, or game that had kind of started the losing streak, and you know that kind of like kind of was the beginning of of your tournament kind of coming off the rails? And do you think there was anything you could have done to play it off better? Yeah, so I started off four and zero at Eternal Weekend, and uh, I, I went into it last week, so I don't want to rehash it too much. But um, uh, my round five, uh, you know, matchup was my opponent was kind of a little shady, doing some suspicious things, uh, and ended up taking down the match. And I felt like I didn't lose that match because of any play errors, or even that my opponent uh, had a better deck than me or got better draws. I just kind of felt like. It wasn't a 100% fair magic matchup. That whole so, deal seemed to like shake you up a bit. I, mm-hmm. We were chatting in between the rounds, and uh, actually, this is where I met Min for the first time. <laughs> was right after this. <laughs> Wait, I thought we met on Sunday. No, no, because I came over and I talked to Lawrence about oh, what had that's just happened. Right. Yeah, yeah, I was there, just like kind of listening. That's right. Mm-hmm. But but uh, sorry, go ahead, Lawrence. Oh, yeah, I was just saying that that whole ordeal seemed to, you know, it kind of took you off of your game, and I imagine it was pretty easy to, like, not get your mind off of what happened there, and it probably made it harder to focus on whatever match you were playing at the time. Right, because a big thing was, like, I was thinking it's like, well, did I imagine it? Like, like did this actually happen? Because I didn't have any hard proof, but it's like, it's not like I've ever, you know, just suspected my opponent of ever doing this to me before. Like, this was kind of a first time experience for me so it kind of like i was focusing like well into my next match it's like you know did i do the right thing should i call the judge earlier should i have called a judge at all am i in the wrong here like also like victim blaming oh, oh i remember this story now i remember this now yeah yeah, yeah. um and then going into yeah i remember <laughs> <laughs> my memory is horrendous by the way just, just fair warning so after that, then like already kind of on tilt, going into my next uh, matchup, I ended up mulling to three against Maverick, which is just like a terrible matchup. Um, so that just like that just pushed me over the edge. Yeah. Do you think there was anything you could have done in them in the interim, Jerry, or in, in retrospect to kind of pull yourself together so you, so you keep up trucking? Because because X one doesn't kick you out of the tournament for sure. Right, X1 doesn't kick you out. It was, well, that was, like, I go into my, I go into round five telling my, or round six, excuse me, telling myself, it's like, okay, X1 doesn't lose it, we still got this, we can just win out from here, and then I mold to three against Maverick, and I'm like, well, fuck, that, now yeah. I'm like, I was like, I was coming back, I was, I was, you know, psyching myself out of it, I, we still got this, and then I just got, like, kicked in the nuts. <laughs> I hear Maverick's a good matchup, though, shouldn't she have just crushed that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't please don't yeah, get Jerry Lawrence. started. Please don't yeah, get started on that. Uh, <laughs> it's just you know all the hate pieces that we hate to see from Death and Taxes. Like 
Malthalia and Wastelands and Revokers. Plus you add in Gaddock Teagues and Instant Speed Caracases with Crop Rotation and Nyla Reliquary. It's, it's great. It's, it's exactly <laughs> what we want to see a sneak attack, <laughs> sneak and show. So, so, Min and Lawrence, can you guys tell me about a time when you had, were, were on a hot streak in a tournament and then the wheels just fell off and sort of what lessons you learned from that? And what you've done to kind of prevent that in future tournaments. So the same thing happened to me at Eternal Weekend. Um, I started off the Vintage portion 6-1 and then lost the last three rounds. Um, Which they... My my experience wasn't like Jerry's where it was kind of like mulling into oblivion and getting variance out. I guess, well, somewhat it was. Uh... I sit down for one of my rounds, and I know my opponent is on, like, the vintage equivalent of Blue Moon. I'm on the draw, and my opening hand is Mental Mist. This is Sean Chen, by the way. Yeah. I, kind of mine. I wasn't going to name drop him, but, you know. Um, <laughs> Min's got you. Sorry. Don't worry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Doxing a Legacy. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, so I look. I know what he's on. I don't think he knows what I'm on. And I look at my opening hand, and it's Mana Drain, two fetches, uh, a Tundra, a misstep, and then some other lands. So it is the classic five land hand and a control mirror that has the ability to get both of my basics for game one. And I tank on that hand for a bit because it's very borderline. Like, if he has a very fast start uh, or a fast Blood Moon, I just lose, basically. Um, otherwise I could probably get out of it and he goes turn one probe <laughs> so I misstep it he missteps back and then sees my now six land managing hand and things just go downhill from there I'm not sure if keeping that hand was wrong because like I said having the two basics and everything is pretty good and the six land hand that I would want would probably just include like a force of will and another blue card maybe a standstill you know that hand was whatever game two i had to hard mode through a jace with a fairy conclave after he had it in play for like three turns and uh when i got it off the board he miracles his second jace and got that game so that was kind of feel bad uh maybe i could have done a few things differently in game one but game two i think i played all right the match that really got me was um actually this was the match before it the match against sean i played the landstill mirror and um my opponent boarded in ways that i think aren't correct um oddly enough for the mirror you're supposed to board out standstill because it's more of a liability it's you know, you can play standstill and just kind of lose to your opponent's factory if you don't find your wastelands. So post-board, you end up boarding in cards like Containment Priest and your extra copy of Swords to Plowshares and turn to more of like a tempo-y, like mid-rangey. It's like a weird sliding scale of how the matchup plays out. Sometimes it's draw-go, other times you're like trading resources very aggressively. And um, game three, I think the play that lost me uh, the game... And the match subsequently was playing a time walk and then snapcasting back a time walk then on my time walk turn, which was a spew of resources. And I think it would have been better to leave the time walk in hand to pitch to Force of Will and then having drain, snap, drain um, available 
off of my Black Lotus and Mox that were in play. Uh, eventually, like two turns later, my opponent plays Engineered Explosives, which isn't a card I'd expect post-board in the mirror, because um, it kills literally only the Moxen and Black Lotus, and the deck only plays two Moxen and one Black Lotus. So the card just seems horrendous post-board, and uh, I got blown out by cards I wasn't really expecting. Um, he also had Emrakul the Promised In, which I think is a pretty terrible card in the deck outside of the mirror. But, yeah, that's kind of how things play out. Yeah. <clears throat> what about you, Min? Uh, so I'm not gonna go into anything super specific, but I wanna I wanna like kind of touch on the fact that Eternal Weekend for me was a bit of a turning point. So up until this, I played in a couple of like GPs and and uh, Eternal Weekend the pre- the previous year. I've never really done that well. Like I've never dated or GP or anything like that. So my whole issue was I didn't really have the stamina to play later into an, a tournament. Like I always had pretty decent starts, like X and one or X and O going into round five, six, seven, and then the wheels kind of fell off. Like, I just get tired, I get antsy, I make weird decisions that I don't need to make. Like, I kill myself uh, on board, things like that. Um, so for Eternal Weekend specifically, I wanted to focus kind of on not doing those things and not tilting and kind of remaining focused and treating each single point of magic the same each time. Uh, so uh, Eternal Weekend this year was kind of my attempt to revitalize myself as a magic player and as someone that can actually play in long events, because I played both, I played every round of both events. So I was pretty tired at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously not the top eight of both, because I'm not that good. Um, but yeah, so round two of Eternal Weekend Legacy, I played against our buddy Anurag Das in the mirror match. Now, I know Anurag, he's way better than I am, and I know myself, and I know both of our 75s. He completely demolishes me, round two of the main event, so I'm a little bit demoralized, but I'm also like, okay, this is fine. If I if my only loss or my only losses today are based on the fact that I played against a matchup I wasn't necessarily re- prepared or respecting, uh, I'm okay with this. So I'm like, okay, let's just process, uh, have a snack, have some water, use the bathroom, wash my hands, uh, and get ready for the next round. And this rhythm kind of continued. Like, I got into this flow of understanding exactly what I needed to do every single round. Um, I played fast, I played. I didn't make mistakes outside of maybe, I think, a mistake I made against Anurag game one, um, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, my other two losses at that event were against Ethan Formicelli, Monkeys Can't Cry on Magic Online, awesome dude, like, super guy I met him, but completely demolished me on Storm, again, a matchup I wasn't super happy with to begin with, but that's okay, uh, and then I lost to a guy who came in, I think, 23rd with Big Eldrazi, who turned three Ulamogs me two games in a row. <laughs> so I'm not super like upset at all about how I performed in Eternal Weekend. I think I did relatively well. I did 46th and 47th in Vintage and Legacy, respectively, which isn't anything to write home about, obviously, but it's better finishes that I've had in any big event I've ever been to. And I think that's kind of speaking towards the fact that if you remain in focus and you keep your head in the game and play every single round the exact same way, even leading late into the day, I think it's a big difference, and food and water were massive for me this weekend, for sure. Or that weekend, rather. You also have to figure out what works for you, though. Um, Food and water is important, but I often don't eat until, like, round five of a tournament. Um, Like, at all. It's 
Well, just kind of something. Eat? Yeah, like I had I had snacks almost the entire weekend. Like I, we had like pizza for dinner every night when we were there, but I didn't eat actual meals until like Sunday. <laughs> oh man, man, you should have come out with us. We would have shown you the town. <laughs> no, I I usually just like don't eat any food until around five ish. Uh, that's usually when I start yeah. getting hungry. Um, I prefer to stay somewhat hungry throughout a tournament. It kind of just like forces you to stay in this fight or flight type of mentality. It does, yeah, and it. Yeah helps me play a bit tighter um don't follow this advice if you're diabetic listeners at home <laughs> please keep yeah your don't, blood don't sugar do up <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah it, it, it's definitely based on each person uh you have to find what works for you like i've tried different things at different events and i think this works for me the best like snacking in between like every other round and drinking water constantly I will say one of the biggest advantages of the VIP was having the water. Yes. I drank. I think that's why I was able to go the 11 rounds and be fine because I drank so much more water at this event than any other event just by the sheer fact that I had access to, you know, not water bubble or water. Like it came out of like, it was like a Poland Springs bottle instead of, you know, like whatever piping system the venue had. So apparently they didn't have a public water option for the event i also had correct the water fountain was two blocks down basically yeah that's kind of insane to me um i think water i don't think that's legal uh it's definitely legal (laughs) it's definitely legal is it (laughs) yeah yeah, no it's 100 percent legal in building limits i I know this because of reasons just just go with it (laughs) okay but uh no i agree with you lawrence like i think like public water like it should be just come with admission like, that should not be a VIP perk. That should just be an everyone perk. Yeah, definitely agreed. Just because but, it's like... Like, at the DCU Spinner, it's like, fuck all if I'm going to pay $9 for a bottle of Dasani. Um, so right, I, right. I almost feel like at, like, these events, I'm, I'm like, rationing my water supply to make sure I don't run out before the end of the day. That's why, I like, tournaments in the Midwest, like, all of the... Like, the Columbus Convention Center has multiple water fountains... Or just, like, water-filling stations. And uh, staying hydrated is never an issue. Oh, uh, another thing, just to, like, go back to the question. You have to find out, figure out what headspace works best for you as a player. Uh, Some people like chatting with their opponents or just, like, rambling. I sit down and I honestly don't want to talk to my opponents at all. Um, it's, It's just easier for me to focus on the game that way. Um... Like, it can be kind of awkward. Like, my round one opponent in the legacy portion recognized me from your, the, or the podcast page. So we ended up, like, chatting about that for a bit. Uh, but I just find that I play better when I just don't really think about anything else or don't try to have a conversation with someone. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, works for some people. Some people prefer to, like, talk a lot to their opponent. Other people are like me, so... Yeah, I do like the the thirty second intro. Hey, hey, where you're from? How long have you been playing Legacy? You know, how, how'd you get here? Kind of thing. Uh, how's your day going so far? But I, I don't go much beyond that. And then, like once we play the game, I'm very focused. I don't talk a whole lot to my opponent. And then when the game's over, I'm more than happy to you know win or lose. Talk to my opponent. Generally speaking, um, but I will say that like <clears throat> personally, um, when I've had a hard time, like my biggest, my, I think my biggest crash and burn was probably the TJ's event in April when, like, I was playing my winning in uh, for, like, it was only, like, a 60-player event, but it was, like, it was like not high stakes, but something I really wanted to top eight. 
And uh, uh, I made, I guess I made two mistakes. So the first thing was like, I usually do a lot of like updating of people who follow me on Twitter, and I'll tell them about like how my tournament's going and stuff. And um, I told people that I was playing Blue Red Delver, and so of course like, Noah Walker was my opponent uh, in like my winning in, and he already knew what I was playing, which is like not great <laughs> to begin with <laughs> when you don't know what your opponent's playing and they know what you're playing. And then also just like it was my first time playing like who I would consider like a well-known magic wait, personality. Wait, was this like a humble, a humble brag? Or were you trying to tell us uh, Noah Walker follows you on Twitter? So he got the, I'm scoop sure on he you? was just following like the hashtag <laughs> for the event. I'm sure. I don't think that he follows me. I can't imagine that there's anything he, he'd glean from my Twitter feed. That would be of interest to him. In regards to that, there's a couple things you have to keep in mind. When you're at the top tables, you start noticing what other people are on and you start logging that, there's a decent amount of scouting. And, you know, a player like Noah is... I'm not going to say he, like, was scouting, but it's very likely that he's paying more attention to what's around him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he may have seen it on your Twitter, he may not have. Um, and that's just, like, a part of the game. And I think playing more on Moto kind of helps you with that. Like, I was playing in a Vintage League yesterday, and somebody recognized me from playing against Rich Shea on his stream mm-hmm. slash, like, my vintage challenge results. And you just kind of get used to people knowing what you're on. Um, sure. You can equalize that by just Googling people's names. I know some people mm-hmm. are against that. I personally think that it's public information, and if you want to go about doing that, you can. And Yeah, if anyone ever, like, recognizes my name, they know what I'm on immediately, no matter where I am. Oh, and... and- uh, and for what it's worth, too, like, I, I, I wasn't trying to accuse or, uh, you know, say I was displeased by him knowing what the deck I was on. It was, like, 100% on me. Like, it was something that was perhaps perfect. Because I think he even mentioned that he saw it on my Twitter, if I'm not mistaken. So um, that was, like, something that was extremely preventable for me. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I don't blame him, nor do I think there's anything wrong with scouting people at other tables or, you know, and or googling people's names i'm all about that that's public info i come from playing sports where you know exactly what the what the other team is going to do so i'm 100 yeah you're uh you're a patriots fan so you're all about you know spying on the other team's playbook you know just getting it and you know yeah yeah pat pat you jerry (laughs) (laughs) um but you're not cheating you're not trying (laughs) the other thing i wanted to mention was that like it was probably like the last time the the first time i played someone who like like i said i consider like a well-known magic player someone who i had heard of before and have a lot of respect for so i think also that kind of got in my head a little bit when i was playing and i made some pretty silly play mistakes that i hadn't made that day and that i wouldn't normally make um you know just you know, part of it was like not paying attention to all the information I had gleaned from a get- an early Gitaxium probe and things like that. So, um, th- things like that are, are something that I kind of take away from that tournament and things I, I try to, to do better with. That happens. Um, like, I personally combat that by just trying to think of my opponents as amorphous blobs. Uh, <laughs> like, I tend to just like. Lawrence, I'm right here, some, man. Some, sometimes literally blob. <laughs> No, like I, I'm right here. I often just like try and dehumanize my opponents, as awful as that sounds. Uh, uh, can like, you please wear this stormtrooper costume? I don't want to think of you as a person. 
Just put a lampshade around their head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just, like, sit down, like, I'm going to need you to wear this paper bag over your head, please. <laughs> um, all right. And just, just since, since we do have one more question, I, I'm interested to hear you guys. Take you just cut Lawrence off. Oh, sorry. Oh. Lawrence, go ahead. Finish up. Yeah, it's fine. I was just saying that I tend to, like, play better when I just don't think about who my opponent is, if they yeah. have success, if they don't. Like, you should play the same way against every opponent, whether or not you think they're better or worse than you. And mm-hmm. uh, when you start going about things like that, you start doing a bit better. Um, it's common. I think it's really important to zero in on that, actually, uh, because that advice you gave me that, like, multiple times over the past couple years, and I never listened to you, really. Not necessarily because I, I chose not to, but because I didn't necessarily know what that meant. And once I started doing that, I started winning a lot more against better players. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a big deal. It, it's funny because, like, I come from, like I said, I've come from a long, for many, many years of playing competitive sports. And, like, that is something that you you always take into any any event. Like, you're not really concerned about the accolades that your opponent has because that really doesn't matter on that day. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter what they have done. All that matters is what they're going to do. And that's I always found that an easy something easy to level myself with when it came to playing sports. But for Magic, for me, it's a, it's a, a lot different experience than that. You know, it, I tend to get more nervous, not nervous, but I'm more aware of my nerves when I'm playing Magic than than things other things that I've done. You know what I mean? For sure, like your mind kind of doesn't wander; it focuses. Yes, you totally, don't have distraction. Totally, totally distractions totally. on you. As what, Theodore Roosevelt once said, "Fear is the mind killer." Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was Theodore Roosevelt. May not be. Doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He said it now. Um, yeah. Actually, right. screw it. Fear is the mind killer. Jerry me 2017. I'm pretty sure that's, that's from like June. Is that like a campaign anyway. slogan, Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> that's my, that is not only my slogan, but it's my campaign promise. Oh, it's going to be the platform upon which I run on. Jerry does have um, the tiny hands of a politician. So. <laughs> I'm a guitarist. Yeah, I don't know. I'm yeah, maybe guitarist. like a ukulele. <laughs> uh, all right. And, hey, man, respect the ukulele. <laughs> all, right. all right. Before one I forget. More... Uh, okay. One thing that will commonly happen is somebody will sit across from someone. And, you know, if it's a better player, somebody may be more induced to make misplays because they think, oh, there's no way my opponent would fall for this. Or, you know, they assume people are better than they are. Or they may play very loose against a player they think are worse is worse, and you just should try and avoid doing that type of thing. Uh, just treat everyone the same, and you know, play respectfully against them. And treat everyone the same like an amorphous blob. Yes, yes. <laughs> you can make them a pretty blob if you want to. Just make sure. them all pretty. pretty yeah, you can respect a blob. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. One more question before we get out of here. Uh, Mulligan strategy slash this is this could be a whole episode, so perhaps we would do a, like a part two for this episode on this one. But if we can keep it to uh, under 280 characters or less, uh, Mulligan strategies slash theories and how to keep yourself in the tournament by avoiding tilt, etc. I think we kind of already kind of covered part of that as well. And you know, uh, Angie Corwin also like just kind of tax on he thinks we've all experienced that at one point or another so can you guys tell me about your mulligan strategies slash theories and and how you try to keep yourself um from avoiding tilt in a tournament it depends on the deck and whether or not i know the matchup um Mm. in our you know group i'm known for being the guy who mulligans fairly aggressively and i'll snap off a six over like a mediocre seven a lot of the times Mm -hmm. 
but again, it depends if I know the matchup. Um, yep. So I think it mostly just comes down to getting as, as many reps as you can with your deck, getting together with a bunch of friends, and keeping just a wide array of hands and mm -hmm. try to get a feel or a census for how they pan out on average so that you can understand what your role is in matchups or just like what you what really matters in your deck and like what you need to play towards no i was gonna say I, it'll, i'll keep it short I, I agree with lawrence on the approach like i think it's systematic i think mulliganing is a science and can be solved a lot of the time if you and that's basically some learning matchups like last year against uh, at gp louisville uh, on sunday my buddy james and i we literally sat across one another played miracles versus rug delver for six hours straight and I learned the ins and outs of that matchup so heavily that I learned immediately what to mulligan and what not, what to keep. And my, I also kind of mulligan a bit aggressively. I, I, I follow the, the Patrick Sullivan school of thought in that you get to mulligan, you don't have to mulligan. Mm -hmm. And I, I enjoy that a lot. Uh, I think one of the interesting ways to look at mulliganing is, like, look at your seven and take away one of the cards and go, like, think if this was a... Or take away, like, the worst card and look at it as yeah. a potential six. Uh, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But I agree with Yeah, men. that's the that's the LSV school of thought. You know, yeah. take away the worst card in your hand, would you keep that six? If the answer is yes, then you keep that seven. Yeah, like... It comes up a lot when you're playing Miracles. Yeah. I... <laughs> Like, for example, the Storm matchup with Old Miracles. I lost to Caleb Shear in the top four of a classic, and the next time I saw him, I just jammed a bunch of games with him. And that really helped me learn, like, what I could keep, what I couldn't keep, and just, like, generally how I wanted to play out that matchup. And that just upped my win rate against Storm tremendously. And, uh, yeah, it mostly just comes down to reps. I don't think there is, like, a tried-and-true way to mulligan. I think it's mostly just a matter of experience with your deck. And it's not even... It, there's, like, experience with your deck, but also just experience in general. Like, I, I think a lot of legacy-exclusive skills aren't necessarily legacy-exclusive. And just learning how to mulligan with a deck... with it, it, Know the cards in your deck. Know what to mulligan to look for. What's your game plan in, in each game you play? Are you in the dark? Are you not? Like... All of those things kind of factor into just basic good magic skills. Mm -hmm. Understanding macro archetypes is also huge. Uh, just like what yeah. a tempo deck or what an aggro deck or what a control deck is generally looking for. Just understanding who's the, the beatdown. Yeah, basically, yeah. who's the beatdown. I I also, my big thing is I try to avoid if only hands with more than one modifier. So basically, you know, this hand would be perfect if only I had lands. Or, you know, this hand would be perfect if only I had, you know, one more land and a cantrip. So, you know, I really, you know, we all have those tempting hands where, like, uh, if I just top deck this one card, this is the nut hand. And those are the hands that you really have to be really careful of and, you know, kind of crunch the numbers a bit. Because if you don't hit that one card you're looking for, um, you know, your entire hand could fall apart. Yeah, that's, um, that's definitely a good point. Like... I've seen a lot of players keep one-landers on the play, and they're like, well, if I hit another land, I'm really good to just, like, win this game. But it's like they're not thinking that they have, like, less than a 50% chance to hit a land on their next draw step, and that, mm -hmm. you know, things only get wonkier from there. 
And I think right, if... especially especially they keep a one land tan and it's like a tropical island and they're playing against a wasteland deck. Right. Like I think you often should take you know the 10 20 seconds to do the math and figure out what the chances of you hitting your out are and then deciding from there yeah so that comes into play a lot with uh sneak and show in particular is you know you really have to avoid those if only hands you know this hand would be great if only i hit a combo piece and some lands this hand would be great if only my opponent didn't have double ashen rider Right. <laughs> <laughs> I can't take that into account. <laughs> um, all right, awesome. If no one wants to add anything to that topic, um, I definitely think we should get into scoops now. Scoops? Yeah. Cool. So, so I mean, I don't know if you've listened to the cast before at all, but I have, instead, yes. of, instead of doing, uh, instead of doing, you know, uh, shout outs, we do scoops in the top eight. So, uh, Lawrence, why don't you lead us off, man? Who do you want to scoop in the top eight this week? Uh, Tom Hep for loaning me all my cards on Moto. Tom Hep. One of, like, the great guys I've met playing Magic. Uh, have not met him in person, but super solid guy, so I can 100% back you up on that scoop. Cool. Awesome. How about you, Min? Uh, I would actually like to scoop in Lawrence Harmon here. Um, he's been a good friend of mine over the past couple of years and helped me grow a lot as a Magic player. And a lot of his advice kind of goes in one ear out the other and then comes back into one year about six months later. <laughs> so he's he's helped me grow a lot, and I attribute a lot of my success as a player to him as of late. I know it's not, like, super successful or anything, but his, like, life advice has given me a lot to think about and has helped me grow a lot. So awesome. good job, Lawrence. You've helped me out a lot. <laughs> Thanks, man. Oh, yeah, man. Lawrence, all that dating advice you keep unsolicitedly sending me has been great. <laughs> yeah, he hasn't given me any of those things, and I nor would I ever listen. <laughs> I'm happily engaged. Thank you. Who needs uh, a spouse when you have cats, man? <laughs> Jerry, how about you, man? Who are you using scooping the top eight this week? Uh, you stole my Caleb. I mean, I'm going to reiterate the Ryan You can still scoop in the top eight. I mean, I am going to still scoop in the top eight, even though you stole it. Well, I'm going to re-scoop in uh, Ryan and Caleb. Uh, thanks for bringing pride to the home team, guys. Uh, good job down there. Uh, can't wait to see you at FNM. Bringing pride to the home team? Is that what you just said? Yeah, that's uh What does that's that even analogy. mean, Jerry? That's, that's an that's, idiom. That's an idiom, right? That is that is nothing. That is just a Back, bunch of words. No, that's an idiom. I'm pretty sure that's an idiom. Oh, man. That, right. that, that, just, that just sounds like a Gerald S meme. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's all I got. Awesome. All well, right, well, I mean, also Min and, Min and, Min and Lawrence for uh, of coming on tonight. Of course. Yeah, thanks, guys, for coming on. Yeah, thank you guys for having of us. Course. This has been awesome. Um, yeah. I'm going to scoop in our newest patron, John Lee. Thanks for joining the, uh, the uh, Patreon family, John. Really appreciate the support. Uh, if you guys want to support the show, obviously, you can do that. Um, the link is in the show notes. Um, I also just want to scoop everyone on the cast in this week, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out. It's been a long podcast. I know people love the long episodes, so I'm sure they're going to really dig this one. Um, really appreciate you guys coming on and, and talking legacy with us. Yeah. Anytime. Anytime. Awesome. Um, all right. So, uh, Min, I know that you stream, um, and obviously you have a Twitter and things. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to kind of shout those out here, let people know where they can find you? Uh, sure, I guess. I'm Mini Hodge on Twitter, twitter.com slash Mini Hodge. I'm also, I'm twitch.tv slash Minifer. I haven't streamed in a long time, uh, but I might pick it up again. We'll see. I play pretty much exclusively Miracles with a couple of uh, random decks thrown in there. We'll see. I might be playing some Vintage in the next few months. Awesome. Um, yeah. That'd be good. But you can find me on the source or on Reddit hanging out about talking about legacy stuff, so... 
Cool, cool, cool. Mm -hmm. um, Lawrence, how about you, man? Uh, you can find me in the Leaving a Legacy page most of the time, um, or Twitter at my name. So, or you can right, just awesome. find me at like a random Midwest Magic tournament. I'll be one of the like <laughs> twelve and a half black guys there. <laughs> That's probably oh, it's gone up. I was, like that might be generous. That it is was generous. five and a half last time I talked to you. It's it's <laughs> more than doubled. <laughs> wow. There's like seven. At, at a tournament, tournament weekend, there were two. No, no. There's more. Yeah, the, two. The Magic player base is very homogenous. Not and, and to its discredit, I don't think it's good for the game, but it is extremely homogenized. It is it is it is skim milk at its finest. Hey man, I paid that detective to tell the college that I was one quarter Cherokee. So you know. <laughs> See, it, it's funny that you guys say that because I've never actually noticed, but I think I've never noticed my entire life. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely idea. notice. I, I notice it when I'm at a magic tournament. Man, this is like yeah. all these people just kind of look like Jerry. It's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Amorphous blobs. <laughs> is that uh, what you really exactly. meant? Is that what you really meant, Lawrence? <laughs> blobs i just sit down and go what's your uh, name and they start rattling no. off their name i just say jerry me <laughs> i'm gonna have to oh, post a tournament report where i just change everybody's name to jerry me <laughs> round two i played it actually <laughs> round two i have a i played another jerry me <laughs> yeah everyone's name is jerry me that's weird <laughs> All right, awesome. Uh, Jerry, you got a, a dieter roll to get us out of here, man? Oh, well, you, oh, also you can find Jerry at JME3RG on, on Twitter. Uh, I'm at PatUglo on Twitter, uh, twitch.tv slash PatUglo. And you can search for Leaving Legacy on all the bullshits if you want to follow us on, on the social media stuff. All right, Jerry. I rolled it. We got a nine. Nine. Uh, ben Mag Borodoka requests Everybody Lost Somebody by Bleachers. <laughs> Nice. I, I don't, don't know, know that song, song but I, I like the bleachers. They're they're kind of a hipstery, bop, poppy, and I don't know. Oh, nothing. Nothing says them. leaving legacy like hipsters. <laughs> it's true. You mean hipsters right. of the coast? Your sponsor. <laughs> yeah. I gotta get myself back home. Awesome. All right. Uh, I gotta get myself something back sweet.
gotta get myself back home soon. I gotta get myself back home soon.